to Radio Free Nintendo. I'm your host, Mike Sklenz. My co-host is Evan Birchfield. I'd like to apologize for the episode being a bit late. We had some technical difficulties during the recording. As a result, this week's episode of Radio Free Nintendo is special. As we are unable to record as normal, we decided to bump a future episode up. In this supersized episode, Evan interviews Planet GameCube's director, Jonathan Metz. This interview was recorded over the phone, and we're sorry that the audio quality is a little less than stellar. If everything goes as planned, we should be back to normal for next week's episode. So for now, enjoy this interview with Jonathan Metz, director of PlanetGameCube.com. Welcome to a special edition of Radio Free Nintendo. My name is Evan T. Birchfield. Mike Sklenz is absent today, and in his place, we prepared a very special treat. Director of Planet GameCube, Jonathan Metz, is here to sit down with us for chat about his work, the site, and, of course, video games. So thanks for joining the podcast today, Johnny. Uh, no problem. So um, everybody knows you're the director of Planet GameCube. <laughs> Um, just for some of the people out there who don't know, because you know, I've known you for a while, how long have you been doing this internet and journalism thing with Planet GameCube and with, it, with uh, other resources? Well, I um, first got online in uh, late 1998. That's when I met you at uh, the Nintendo.com forums. And uh, within two or three months, I started my first website um, in January 1999, which was called The Informant. And I went to my first E3 in May 2000. That's where I met uh, Billy Burkhammer. And by the end of the summer, August uh, or September of 2000, I joined Planet in 2000. And uh, I've been with them ever since. So I've been with this site um, for nearly six years. And um, I've been the director since, uh, I think... March of 2003, although it might not have been made official until a month or two after that, I don't remember. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what have your various duties been? I know that you started out just after, and then you were previews editor for a time? Yeah, um, I was previews editor, actually like, I, I wasn't a staff writer for very long, because when I joined the site, um, you know, this was before GameCube existed, so we, I mean, we didn't even know the name of it. Um, and after Space World in 2000, when they showed off the Zelda trailer and, um, you know, Two Human and all this various stuff that they had there, um, Luigi's Mansion, Wave Race, um, Max Lake and I, um, Max was one of the more senior people on the staff at that time, he and I got together and uh, said, hey, we need to do previews of these games. We didn't have any previews on the site. We, we didn't have anything to preview. So Max and I got together and uh, started writing all these previews and I was writing a lot of them and figuring out the formatting and putting them all together and I said hey Billy since I'm doing this anyway why don't you call me previews editor <laughs> I, I was a bold. Promotion. exactly well I mean I was doing the work anyway so just made it official and um, uh-huh. and uh, so that I became the previews editor but uh, I didn't do that for terribly long either as I remember it. Eventually I became the managing editor which meant I was in charge of the staff, the personnel basically and and would motivate them to get their things done. Um, basically just kept up with assignments and things like that. Um, and that was pretty good training for being the director which was my next job because that's still a big part of what I do now. Mm-hmm. So what was that first E3 like when you first went? That was what year two thousand? Um, 
I'm going to have to apologize. There's a guy weed-eating right outside my window. Um, it, my first E3 was uh, really great, although I had no idea what was going on. Uh, I went with a, It was my senior trip um, in high school. I was 18, and um, I didn't know anybody there, so I took a friend from home, uh, my friend David Mize, from high school, and... Uh, <clears throat> we just went and looked around, and you know we, that was the only year I think that I've been to Kensha Hall. Um, we looked all over the place, you know, just spent a lot of time everywhere. That was the only year I played a lot of uh, Sony stuff. That was before Xbox was announced, and um, it was really cool. Very disorganized, lots of roaming around, no appointments, <coughs> you know. Um, yeah. I went to a couple of parties. The most important party I went to was the IGN um, affiliates party, which uh, Ben Kosminik got me into because he was technically an IGN affiliate that year. He was working with a site called EurasiaGameBoy.net. Excuse me. <clears throat> and um, he, I met him and got to be friends with him, and so he invited me to this IGN affiliates party back when they had their big affiliates program, and. Um, like their affiliates were wide ranging. They had um, Nintendo Joe and um, Nintendorks and Planet N2000 and a whole bunch of other ones that are, some of them are just famous and they're not here anymore. Some of them are actually still around. And that's the night I met um, Billy and uh, Steven from Planet N2000. And I also met a ton of Nintendorks. At that time, I was pretty sure that working for Nintendorks would be the greatest thing that could ever happen to me. So I was trying really hard to ingratiate myself with those guys. And uh, I did make some friends with them, and I still know some of them. Um, but uh, Planet N2000 was... I really only vaguely knew of the website before that night. And I met Billy, and I was like, oh yeah, I've seen that site before. Um... And then I think I impressed them the next night. Um, there was a party with at Sapphire. Um, they had a party at, at this fancy hotel in um, Hollywood, I think, that they were staying at, maybe Beverly Hills. And I went to a party there, and it was back when Sapphire was like the coolest developer. You know, like everybody thought really highly of them back. That was not long after they did StarCraft: Brood Wars, which is a great game, and they did mm -hmm. Rainbow Six for N64, which is another great game. So anyway. Um, the pres the current president back then um, was Les Pardue, and, and um, I knew of him through email. I had been in contact with him. We were supposed to do an interview. So I kept trying to get him alone the whole night so I could do this little interview of mine. I mean, I had questions written out and everything, you know, which is so funny because I was such an amateur. And um, I never could really get him alone. I finally got him talking, but there were other people standing around. And it ended up being like a group interview. We had all these other journalists, people there, including Billy and Steven and some other people. And we're all just kind of standing around asking him all kinds of questions about development, you know, this and that. And it, it was really, really cool, and everybody got to contribute. Um, and that's the way I posted it at the informant uh, the next day. But because of my involvement in that group interview, uh, I impressed Billy and... Uh, that's how I got invited to be on the staff at the end of that summer. Mm -hmm. I actually remember that. I remember that interview, and I remember how um, how actually important it was to the the informant and to its readers, which was well, it was probably the phase. first. Inf it was probably the first informant interview of any sort. So uh -huh. <laughs> it was but important it in that first, respect, also. Yeah, and the first truly exclusive content right. that was uh, outside of its reviews and, and editorials. Yeah. 
So the informant was um, was around for just about under your control a little over a year. If I'm, if I'm calculating right. Well, I started in January '99. No, it was about a year and a half. Um, okay. And then I gave it over to you in the fall of uh, 2000. But I was still involved with it pretty heavily until almost a year after that because when I when I uh, turned when I gave over the editor in chief position to you. Um, I became the newsletter editor, and so even though I was previews editor at Planet GameCube, um, I was still doing the, the weekly newsletter for the informant, which is this awesome, crazy bulletin that we would send out every week to like 20 people who read the informant, <laughs> and I would spend hours writing it, um, and it was, it had this structure and I think we intentionally set up the structure to be abused. Like there, you know, there was a section about updates to the website. Then there was a section where we do reader mail. There was a section where I would ask questions, and the readers of the newsletter would send back answers that were funny. And there was just like there was a section called "Why I Am God," and it was just complete nonsense every week. And it be, and it got to the point where people knew the structure of the newsletter so well that we would even change the titles of the sections, and those were jokes themselves, separate from the uh, jokes in the body the actual, of the section. Yeah, and, and uh, it was probably completely incomprehensible. Yeah, to anybody. Yeah, who like just it. a few weeks ago, I was looking back in my archives, and I and I read one of the newsletters, and I was like, "What's up with these section titles?" And, I mean, it, it had to be, you had to be a regular reader to even get the jokes. I mean, they didn't even make sense. But I had a lot of fun with that. I, you know, in my current job, I don't get to be that creative and crazy all that much. Although I do have that side to me. So that was a, a nice outlet for it. Yeah, and, certainly. Um, it was an Nintendo game you were trying to get out. Definitely. You know, a lot of that stuff was heavily influenced by the Daily Reader comments. I mean, I used to be, yeah. a, you and I both were regulars on Daily, daily Reader comments. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And that whole snappy, sarcastic, bizarre, random sense of humor that Brandon DeHart had, um, a lot of that rubbed off on me. And um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and from other people too. Um, you know, people like Happy Bob and uh, all these strange people that we knew online back then. Yeah. Yeah. So, I guess one of the things that, that impresses me when when talking about how long you've been involved <laughs> and how long and how long uh, a lot of people have been involved. Stephen Rodriguez is still around. Billy Burkhammer now is doing this professionally. And Ty um, Sugar was one of the founding members, also. Yeah, absolutely. And he's still he's still around, and he's got his craziness on our message board. <laughs> uh, the fun I house. Guess the real question is. Why Why video games? Why is it that, of all things that you were interested in, and I know that you are a multifaceted person, yeah. that, that it, it ended up being video games when you yourself were going to college or something completely opposite, and you are, um, you know, you're interested in music and film and all these other things. Mm -hmm. What is it about video games that has interested you so much? Well... What I found was, it, it's funny, when I was growing up I played a lot of video games. I was, you know, had a lot of NES games and Super Nintendo came along and I played uh, especially RPGs on there. I was really, really into all the Square RPGs. And um, <clears throat> when the N64 came along, I, uh, well, you know, there, were that, there was that period like from when Donkey Kong Country came out, there were like two or three years of the last years of Super Nintendo when 
there weren't a whole lot of good games coming out. It was sort of in between generations. It was about the time the PlayStation was coming out, like 1994, 95. And um, I just kind of got there wasn't anything coming out that I was all that interested in. Um, I think I let my Nintendo Power subscription run out. Um, and I just didn't... I stopped playing games for a year or two. Um, I just... I mean, I would still rent one occasionally, but I didn't play it regularly like I used to. And then when I got into high school, um, the N64 came out, and that sort of renewed my interest. And um, then, especially when I got online in 98, um, I was fascinated that there were so many people who were interested in talking about this stuff, you know, at a semi-intelligent level at least, and um, and people who wanted to know more about it. And, and it seemed to me there was information out there, but people weren't getting it. You know, where I really got my start was at the Nintendo.com forums, the insider forums, and my favorite place to post, although I was in multiple sections, but my favorite one was the Nintendo Rumors, or the Game Rumors section, um, which I kind of t completely took control of with an iron fist, because people would go in there, a rumors forum is dangerous anyway, because what people would do is, and a lot of these were kids, you know, but a lot of people would go in there and just make things up about, you know, the Triforce being an Ocarina of Time, things like that. And they would come up with these elaborate explanations of how to get these Easter eggs that didn't actually exist. And people would fall for it, and then they'd get really upset when they didn't work, but they still wanted to believe, so they'd ask, you know, what did I do wrong? And I, and I could tell this stuff was, was really bull. And um, so I would kind of, you know, try to become an expert on everything that I could, could and then I would try to debunk these rumors when they came in to save people that the hassle, you know. Or if something was plausible and had not been disproven, I would say, hey, let's go try to find some more information on that, you know. And it sort of trained me to become this kind of newsman, you know, kind of guy where I'm, I'm going out and looking for facts. I'm trying to get the record straight. I'm trying to keep people from being confused because what happens is, when you know when somebody comes in and posts something that's just made up somebody else believes it and they go somewhere else and post that and before long you have this misinformation and back then it was especially bad because there weren't as many good um, video game websites as there are now I mean it wasn't nearly a professional kind of setting like it is now so yeah, there's just wildfires of misinformation and sometimes the the false information was more widespread than the true information Yeah. Yeah, there was one situation where um, someone had, some person had faked the most impressive Triforce screenshots in <laughs> Ocarina. Yeah. And they were all over the internet. I think it was either 99 or 2000. And the, the message boards on over there, everywhere, were ablaze. Mm -hmm. the, the official, I shouldn't say the official, the... Um, the unofficial but the biggest Zelda website at the time that was the one that had, you know, the breakdown of the connections of the storylines between all the games and all of that. Mm -hmm. um, that one had, it had this whole debunking um, section and, and there were people who said, no, I don't believe this debunking, I believe this is true, I believe this person's not lying to yeah. us. And uh, it, it got to such a point where I even was ste stepping back and saying, well, why do we care so much? <laughs> why do we care so much about this little, this little, this little piece of, pieces of ones and zeros 
that are going to be appearing on our screen uh, just because we want to get the Triforce, we want to get this little graphical treat in, in a great video game. Yeah. Uh, it, it borderlines obsessive. I guess that uh, leads to my next question, which is as far as journalism online, as you can see, you talked about how it was in the late 90s. Um, but, and, and how it is today. Do you, do you find that it's it's valid? Certainly, it, you started out as a fan, and Planet GameCube is still a fan, essentially a fan, fan site. <laughs> well, so, that's an interesting subject, but... Yeah. I think um, what we are, I mean, I think we straddle the line between amateur and professional, and that's been the way I've seen the site for years, and especially when I became director, I said, this is the direction I want to go in. I want us to, you know, some people were always like, why don't you, you know, go corporate or whatever, you know, why don't you start paying all of your staff members and, you know, sell, sell um, memberships so people can read your content. That was the thing to do like three or four years ago when IGN started Insider and all that. And people were like, you know, are you going to be doing that? Or, you know, they're kind of worried. And also we're, trying to develop better relationships with the publishers so we can get the same kind of high-level content that the professional sites get. And I kind of uh, tried to strike this balance where I would, you know, find ways to convince um, the people who mattered, like the, uh, the publishers and, and Nintendo, people like that, I try to convince them that we, you know, are serious about this and that we have very high-level, uh, high-quality work, um, that everything goes through an editing team, which is more than even some of the professional sites can say, and um, th that, you know, we are not just uh, a fan site. I mean, we fact-check um, everything, and um, it worked. To, you know, there's still some companies that I struggle with even today, and some of them took a very long time to talk to but for the most part it, it really worked and it was worth the effort because what it means is that we're still independent and um, we're still free to do what we want to operate in the way we want to and we're not dependent on any giant corporation or stock offering or anything like that but you know I to me it's like we have the best of both worlds or the you know all the almost best of both worlds I mean I'm trying to make it the best but um, I'd like to think that we have that independence and that amateur level of passion, you know, where we're not all jaded and, oh, this is my job, I, you know, I do this because I get paid. I mean, I think you can tell the difference. And also, we just have this massive staff. And when you go to an event like E3, it makes a huge difference. You know, you know I pity guys like uh, IGN, we who have two people there covering all the Wii games and we have 12 or more so um, it helps a lot in that kind of situation but it's just great to have this pool of people and they have such a diverse array of talent you know you don't need one person who can do everything um, and, I, and I really love the setup we've got now so I hope it will continue you know I, I mean there are always going to be changes and hopefully we can increase our financial stability and all that stuff, but I, I don't want the readers to have to worry about that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, having been in the game for about six, seven years, and been a fan of video games for much longer than that, hmm. uh, would you say that when you were when you were 
sitting at your computer in ninety-eight, ninety-nine. That the way the place that video games are now is where you imagine they would be. Do you think we've come a long way, or uh, do you think that we're nowhere near what you expected? You know, I think um, it's gone. At the, the, the evolution of gaming in that span of time is pretty natural. I think we've the graphics are certainly much better, although probably not as good as I would have imagined. Um, but uh, the game designs have expanded a good bit. I mean, to me, a game like... Um, I know people are going to hate me for bringing this up, but a game like Grand Theft Auto, which is a series that I love. I've never played the first two, but, you know, the three on PS2, I love all of them. And that kind of really free-roaming, do-anything-you-want, complete, you know, a world that you can... Be- it's not realistic, but it's believable. Um, it's hard to imagine that on the N64 when you're in that mindset and you're like, oh, this is what's possible. It's hard to imagine a game like that. I, I honestly would not have expected that scope of a game to appear until this generation that's upcoming now. So I'm kind of amazed that, that we got, you know, that the developers were able to accomplish that on the hardware that they did. And, um,. <clears throat> That has me really excited for the future because I think you can take that philosophy um, much farther than they have so far, and with a lot of different kinds of games that don't involve shooting hookers. So, <laughs> and you've seen that to to some extent, but I think this idea of creating a world that you can live in, you know, like Mario sixty four was really the first game that did that at all, but it did it in this in this weird episodic way where you know you have these very small worlds and they're all connected by a hub and it, there's just really no uh, continuity to it so yeah. and and you know Mario is also pretty thin on story and that's not what it's about it, it doesn't necessarily need that but I think um, probably pretty soon we're going to end up with the kind of fantasy world that has the scope of what the Grand Theft Auto series does, and I think that's going to be really cool. And you could argue that the the massively multiplayer online games do that, but I, I don't think it's the same thing. No, I agree. I played EverQuest for a year and <laughs> I remember my life away. <laughs> uh, um, and uh, I think that I think the problem with massively multiplayer and also with the, the giant uh, supposed role-playing games such as the Elder Scrolls I got to play a fair amount of Oblivion over the past few months, and I think that the one thing that's most disappointing about them is that they're so open that there's no real, um, there's nothing real specific that you have to do. Even when Grand Theft Auto opens up its world to you, yeah, you're still um, you're still playing a game, and you still have a linear objective occasionally. You choose oh, to have a linear objective. That's very important. You know, sometimes I'll spend hours doing side missions, but. I can do that knowing that I can always go back to the real mission. And if the real mission wasn't there, I think I would lose my motivation to keep playing. You can't just give you can give a kid a sandbox, but the problem is in a real sandbox a kid can do anything, you know, pure imagination because he, he he's living in the real world. When you have a video game, um, there are limits there. You can't just make up whatever you want. You can only work with what the game gives you. So number one, the game has to give you a lot of stuff to play with. And number two, it has to give you some direction. 
Well, we can compare that to a game like uh, Resident Evil 4, which is an absolutely innovative game in a lot of ways, and one that has kind of shaken up the uh, the gaming world when it was released uh, back in uh, back to a year and a half ago. I guess the the thing about that game, though, that is so striking is that it's not it's not willing to go that route. It it's so linear. That game is far more linear than almost any other game I've ever played. <laughs> and uh, I think that it's I think it's interesting how you'll get into a situation where if you don't use the right gun, then you'll die. They, the game will tell you exactly which gun you need to use, essentially in, port, in parts. <laughs> and and that game is I think. It's, it's not to be uh, it's not to be sacrificed for the sake of the sandbox um, oh, I, the sandbox yeah. yeah the sandbox absolutely an, an innovative concept but we won't see a Zelda sandbox um, I think the closest we ever got was Majora's Mask and that wasn't a sandbox at all it was just a very um, that was more like a believable world <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, so the, I think that the, the extremely linear game has a has a chance. I think that Resident Evil 4 is a more successful cinematic game mm-hmm. than a game like, say, Metal Gear Solid. You know, I don't... To me, the success of Resident Evil 4 doesn't have all that much... To, not, at least in my opinion, is not because it's so cinematic. It's because it's so much fun. Um... The now I'm I'm currently playing through the Metal Gear Solid series for the first time, and I think the success of that game is more based on the cinematic qualities because the gameplay is not that great, but the story is you know way beyond what you get in a typical game. In Resident Evil 4, the story is really not all that amazing. Um, it's above average at least. But the reason I kept playing was because I found that the game got more and more difficult, but at a pace that I could keep up with. You know, I felt like my skills at playing the game improved as the game got more difficult. And that's a very, very satisfying feeling, when you feel like you just barely overcome each section of the game as it comes to you. And also, um, I I really, really enjoyed the... um, you know the tenseness. This was the first Resident Evil that really doesn't do a lot of jump out of the window scare tactics at you. Um, that was the bread and butter of the first game, and the second game got a little more atmospheric, but it still had a lot of this jumpy stuff. And to me, the series is a lot better when it's just tense. When it, you know, it's all, all it's so moody, and some of the scariest parts are when you're walking down a dark path and nothing happens. You know, but it's so dark and creepy that you just get weirded out. I mean, that that's fantastic to me. And that really doesn't have anything to do with cinematics, I think. Um, well, I guess the way I'm defining cinematics is not so far as, um, you know, cutscenes and story, yeah. but as its ability to, its ability to convey its, um, its presentation and to maintain its aesthetics uh, throughout. I mean, we can call Zelda a cinematic game in a lot of ways because mm-hmm. of how focused it is on story, and it does have cinemas, but it, it, it too also tells its story through gameplay. Something I think Resident Evil 4 does even more. Mm-hmm. You constantly have to take care of Ashley, and if Ashley gets in danger, I think that there's there's more that's um, frightening to me to losing Ashley, a gameplay element, than there is to losing someone like Eris in Final Fantasy 7 or any girl in a Final Fantasy game. Oh yeah, the, well the whole Eris thing is way overblown. You know, I, anybody who tells me they cried when Eris died, I don't believe them because 
to me that was the most vacant, emotionally vacant scene of death in any game I can think of. I mean, when Eris died, I was like, why? I mean, what's the point? She was not an interesting character. And I don't think there was any hint of believable romance between her and Cloud. They they got the romance down much better in Final Fantasy VIII. And in Seven, there was, from my memory, of course it's been years since I played it, but there was basically no meaningful relationship at all between Cloud and Eris. And then Sephiroth comes along like halfway through the game and just kills her for no reason. <laughs> and I was like, why, you know? She, I found her kind of annoying, actually. <laughs> so, she was the healer, so I guess that I guess that for some people that might have been a, a real blow to their gameplay. But I think that that's that's where I'm saying with Resident Evil Four. What the like? I think the the death in Resident Evil Four is the death of the helicopter pilot you meet in the last like last fifth of the game. He shows up. You're in a tough area. He shows up just out of nowhere and says, "Oh, by the way, I'm your help." He starts killing all the zombies for you, and it's excellent. There's explosions. It's fun. And then you get to the end, and what happens? The boss shoots him down. And, and this is the guy who was your... sent to rescue you? Yeah. yeah. And since he was affecting your gameplay, he was not only a story element, but also a gameplay element. Right. And that, when he died, I don't think I've ever been sadder at a video game death <laughs> than that. Because it affected me in, in more ways than one. And that's why I always appreciated in a Resident Evil game that they that the saves were a real item that you could run out of, mm-hmm. and that you you were limited by the gameplay as much as you were uh, the story. I think that that's that's a powerful way to to create that tenseness and to create an emotional attachment. Same way with Ashley, you know, yeah. that you're interacting with her, you have to care about her. Well, whether she's annoying her, you know, even in four, you're you're still kind of limited on the saving because you can only save in certain places and sometimes yeah. those places are, are hard to get to yeah. um, you know it's dangerous to go back and save because of all the enemies that are there so um, I, you know the, I understand the philosophy behind the ink ribbons in the earlier games but I really think it's a case of the the story benefit is outweighed by the detriment to the gameplay um, and the, you know the same went for the controls and things like that. They would claim that the controls were to make you frustrated and to make the game scarier. But and that may have been true, but I had, I think it's more important to make the game play fluidly um, and and use other ways. It's in other words, it's a cheap gimmick. There are more substantial ways to make the game tense, and I think Resident Evil Four used all of them. Yeah, well, you have to consider Resident Evil 4 still has clunky controls. Your perspective is such that you are seeing limitlessly in front of you, but nothing behind you. Sure. So I think the potential is still there because it's just in a different way that the plot better. It is more fluid. But you can't see behind you. The game is constantly able to, to scare you by saying, you're surrounded by zombies. But you're a human. You can only see in front of you. Instead of having a God's eye view. Well, that's how it is in real life also. So that yeah. we that we're willing to put up with. I mean, I, I don't yeah. expect to be superhumanly powerful in every game I play, where I can, you know, I'm omniscient and I'm omnipotent. I, I, you know, that wouldn't be fun. You have to put limits on it. But this artificial limit of, you know, you can only see this bedroom from this bizarre camera angle in the corner of the floor, yeah. underneath the bed, and you know, that doesn't really have any. That is cinematic. That's he's trying to copy 
a camera angle that he saw in some horror movie that probably wasn't very good to begin with. Uh-huh. And when you put when you take a scene like that and then put the person in control of it, it's just annoying. I mean, it, it, it doesn't really make you enjoy the game more. In other words, it, you know, Mikami or whoever whoever's idea it was to do those camera angles, um, and the controls are, are just a re- direct result of the camera angles that they use. They, they did the controls to make it less confusing. Um, and you can kind of see that in Eternal Darkness, um, where sometimes you're not really sure which way you should point to go forward because it uses, you know what I mean? Yeah, um, yeah. But in Resident Evil, the controls are just a result of the camera angles. And the camera angles were, you know, someone thinking that, oh, hey, if we make this look like a horror movie, it'll be scary. And they didn't really consider that the, the gaming medium is fundamentally different and you can't just take ideas directly over. Mm-hmm. And, and they work. Oh. That's an interesting. That's an interesting concept because that's just about the that's the last thing I really want to discuss with you. Is uh, do you think that video games are ever going to achieve the same status as as movies? Certainly, they're they're visual, and people often quote that Metal Gear Solid is a movie is a game that's a lot closer to than than other games, um, with half of it being cinematic. Um, do you think that they'll ever achieve that same respect without having to resort to a Hollywood story? Well, okay, firstly, a, a distinction. Half of Metal Gear Solid is not cinematic. Half of it is literally a movie. And, you know, that's a that's a weird difference, but I think it's significant. Um, you know, I think comparing games to movies is sort of a futile pastime. A lot of people like to do it. A lot of people like to base their games on movies. And... It makes sense because movies are sort of the next youngest medium. You know, movies have only been around for about a hundred years, um, and the in that time, I think the artistic merit of film has skyrocketed. I mean, even early on with things like Citizen Kane, you had people who were seeing the amazing things that you can do with this, and that was you know roughly maybe 20 years, 30 years after, uh, no, that was maybe 40 years after the uh, advent of film. So I think, I'm not saying that that games have produced a Citizen Kane for games, but I think there's been some amazing games that really push what's possible with the medium in even less time than film did. So I think, but you know, as far as whether games will catch up to film, that's kind of like saying that film is the standard that games should be shooting for and I don't think that's really the case and I think the current state of film is not necessarily all that great anyway Um, it it depends on how you look at it It depends on what films you're talking about Um, sure and they're just they're not the same thing Um, I think there are things from the film world that are useful to apply to the game world and some of that has happened and some of it has yet to happen and there are things from the game world that maybe this is harder but maybe you can apply those to the film and come up with something new even there but you know ultimately I think these are things that should kind of not be converging towards each other and I think um you know, like with the Wii, 
Nintendo is sort of saying, hey, by the way, we don't really care if our games look like movies. They're definitely not going to play like movies, obviously. <laughs> so we're concerned about what makes a game a game, what makes it fun to play, and we're going to focus our efforts and our creativity in that direction rather than trying to make it look like a movie. And I think that's admirable. It's risky, and... Um, it may or may not work, but surprising to me, it looks like it may work. Um, but, you know, I, I tend to think that, you know, questioning whether games and, and movies are becoming more alike or whether they should is sort of like asking whether music is becoming more cinematic and whether music will ever compete with movies. I mean, it, it's just... Um, it's it's just sort of silly, you know. They they can coexist. They don't have to be competing with each other. I mean, y you'll have people who say, you know, games make more money than movies or whatever. But th again, that depend. You know, there's still far fewer people who play games. They just spend more money on them, and so yeah. they certainly have not had the cultural impact of film. Yeah. And you couldn't imagine them to. They've they've been around for a fifth of the time, and. Um, you know, I, I don't think games will ever have the extreme pervasiveness of movies, and part of that is because games don't really involve real people. And part of the reason movies have gotten to be incredibly popular is because they have these things called actors, you know, and these people go out and promote it. Their their lives themselves become stories that people feed upon, and. Um, you have all these interesting cases of mixing various actors that you're interested in into one movie and saying, wow, I wonder what happens when, um, you know, Tom Cruise and, you know, um, Philip Seymour Hoffman get together and make a movie together. What's going to happen there? That is not really going to ever happen in games. So you don't have the celebrity factor. You don't have the human factor. Um, that's involved there, and you don't have the the density the density of entertainment. I mean, a movie has no really no attachment whatsoever. It it takes less than two hours typically, and then if you don't want to think about it after that, you don't have to. And so that's why you have this whole genre of popcorn movies where people literally just go for the pure escapism, and they leave, and then it's over with. They don't have to talk about it anymore. And games are not like that. I mean, people would be pissed if they only got two hours of gameplay. And I think people <laughs> but they would be... still play Metal Gear Solid. Well, that takes a lot longer to play through if you watch all the movies. Sure. Even sure. if you don't, it takes longer than two hours. But yeah. um, games are a great... You know, a, a lot of us gamers like games because we get a lot of bang for our buck. Um, and that's why games have originally appealed to younger people because younger people have less expendable income. We don't have stable jobs yet. So when we have $50 to spend in a month on entertainment, we'd rather get a game that we can play for the entire month. But you have to realize for a lot of mature adults, that's not appealing. Um, they say, I don't have time to do that. And so movies are a lot more reasonable. You know, they can go out on a Friday night and just do it. So yeah. that's yeah. part of it. And I don't think that's necessarily going to be fixed by Nintendo introducing these games you can pick up for 10 minutes or whatever. That's yeah. just portable gaming. I mean, that's just 
that's bite-sized stuff. Um, it's not the same thing as having this entire, I mean, think about even in six hours of watching the Lord of, you know, or nine hours of watching the Lord of the Rings series, think of the massive amount of content you get in nine hours. And you cannot point me to a game that gives you that much story and that much drama and that much action in nine hours. Not even, you know, the best brief games like God of War and things like that. Um, it, there aren't any, you know, because it's so focused by the director that you can make the scenes extremely dense. You can use a 30 second scene to tell a very important story point and you can't really do that in games nearly as well. So Yeah. So do you think that games are gonna constantly be in, in a status along with board games and or, no, no, no. or at least they're no. gonna be considered trifles or or a family um, entertainment in the home. Nothing to be elevated beyond um, beyond fun. No, I don't think that's the case. Um, but you know, whatever the ultimate cultural impact of games is, I don't think it'll be the same as the ultimate cultural impact of film. I don't think they're going to the same place. And, um, you know, I don't know what will happen with games. I don't know if people will, will consider them an art form. I think currently there are not enough truly creative games uh, for that to happen. So we, we need, you know, in order for it to be taken seriously as art, and I don't know if it should be, but if that's the goal, then we really need to get out there, developers at least, need to uh, start coming up with some really fresh ideas rather than base all of their game concepts on movie concepts and call that art, or even on literary concepts to poke a little fun at Dennis Dyack maybe. You, you know, you can't just ape another medium and say, oh, well now this is art you have to be creative in your own medium and think about what makes that unique. Yeah. Um, and you really have to push the boundaries of that. I think um, some of the stuff Nintendo is doing on the DS, you know, Electroplankton is art. I don't think it's a good game. <laughs> it, it may not be good art, but it is art. You know, art's not quality-based. Um, you know, whether people ever really take it seriously, I don't know. It depends on whether the game developers and the game publishers take it seriously, not whether the gamers do. We are the consumers, not the creators, so. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's all the time that we have for today. <laughs> Thank you very much, Johnny, for no coming in and standing in today. And uh, there's some interesting things covered. Um, you know, I'm tempted to start a a, a thread in the forums just to continue the discussion. <laughs> well, so. I, I just want to tell people that I'm not always this serious, and um, one day, hopefully, I'm going to like host the podcast with you guys and really cut it up and go crazy because I like <laughs> to do that too, and I I am known to do that on occasion. And uh, he I has just, been known to go a little crazy. I have to I, be in the right I, mood, and it has to be the right forum. And right now, it's a little too early in the morning for me to 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 just go, you know, go go nuts. But um, yeah. I can do it. I can be funny. I can be zany. <laughs> One day, just keep saying it, Johnny. Eventually, someone will believe you. 
<laughs> Eventually. You know, I'm sorry, friend. Those who those who uh, were on were listening to radio trivia two or three weeks ago will know when I started talking about. Um, you know the giant crab in the PS3 demo? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I started talking, you know, since that was ostensibly uh, taken from ancient Japanese history. Um, <laughs> yes, exactly. I started talking about how Godzilla defeated the crab. But since it was like, you know, thousands of years ago, Godzilla was wearing a Roman centurion's helmet because he had come across the Pacific and the Atlantic uh, from Italy. Mm -hmm where he had been fighting in the Roman Empire and he had led a you know a centurion as a commander and he has a squadron of a hundred soldiers except Godzilla's soldiers were all baby Godzillas <laughs> exactly I think I remember learning about that in school I and think I, I remember failing that test and I made all that up on the spot and I thought it was pretty funny at the time <laughs> maybe not in the retelling but I, I am capable of that. So I, you know, the crazy side of Johnny will be unleashed one day. One day, and if only people could see you at E3. And I fear the consequences. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty crazy at E3. When you put me around a lot of other crazy people, I tend to fall in line. Yeah, you, you're very serious during the day. You're very serious, and sometimes a little stressed out. Well, and during the day of E3, that's serious work. Yeah, <laughs> it is going it really crazy. Is. I'm I'm scratching my eyes out of stress, but uh, yeah. <laughs> and then and then at the hotel, it it ends up being just this. It just degenerates into uh, <laughs> just uh, video games and jokes and rude comments and and making fun of each other to the point that uh, it's we walk away and we're like, I'm not sure I feel so good about myself, but I love those guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the E3 experience, you know. I, that is the I, E3 experience. I will finish by saying this: PictoChat really bears a man's soul. It really does. Uh, I agree. I don't think anything more needs to be said about that. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, thank you, Johnny. Uh, be sure to tune in next week for another episode of Radio Free Nintendo, and you can email us with any comments you have at podcast at planetgamecube.com. The podcast is available on iTunes and Odeo. Visit our website for more information. Thanks. Peace out, y'all.